I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending May 15th. In this episode, Lars Rieger is CTO of NXP Semiconductors. He's been managing the development of the company's automotive technology for nearly a dozen years and for the company's entire technology portfolio for the last two. This week, we talked to Rieger about the Internet of Things, the difference between safety and security, and how to keep hackers out of your refrigerator, among other things. Also, High Silicon recently broke into the ranks of the top 10 semiconductor companies in the world. That's a pretty exclusive club it just joined. We have a conversation with international editor Junko Yoshida about what that means for the electronics industry and for China. NXP Semiconductors is one of the leading chip suppliers in several of the largest, most dynamic, and most security and safety critical markets. The company boasts of having one of the broadest processor portfolios for the Internet of Things, and it claims to be one of the world's largest chip suppliers to the automotive industry. Lars Rieger was named CTO of NXP's automotive division in 2008, and in December of 2018, he was promoted to corporate CTO, responsible for the company's entire technology portfolio. Rieger graciously agreed to become a member of the editorial advisory board of our sister publication, EDN. We recently got on the phone with him. EDN editor Richard Quinnell, EE Times International editor Junko Yoshida, and EE Times editor Nitin Dahad were on the call. The opening topic in just about every conversation that any one of us has these days is how we're making do during the pandemic and the great lockdown. Rieger said that NXP had 75% of its workforce working from home. Working at home has been mostly successfully said, though some employees with children report that they're getting frequently distracted. He also said that he's impressed that existing communications infrastructure has been sufficient for pretty much everything the company does. You don't need 5G to work from home, he said. When we got around to asking him about technology, Rieger started with what NXP sees as the big, overarching megatrend. Today, I'm in an on-demand world. So I, I take my mobile phone out, hammer on, a, on, on the mobile phone and say, I want to have an Uber and I want to have it now. Okay, yeah, or I switch on or off my, my auxiliary heating now in my car or whatever. So on-demand. And what we are moving towards is a world that anticipates and automates. So like Queen said it uh, exactly 30 years ago, I want it all and I want it now, but of course not with you taking action, but the world is adjusting around you. Now, how does this work? That works with 75 billion, that is the forecast for 2025, 75 billion smart connected devices around us. And a smart connected device is, of course, your smartwatch, your intelligent speaker, uh, your welding robot, your autonomous car. So a smart connected device is a very, very broad term in my language. But what I mean by that is this is decentralized devices. And I put us in this area of the decentralized devices um, uh, because we have the portfolio to build almost all of those devices compared to cloud system providers. So big compute, big storage, but only a few of those systems globally. Now, the engineers have been traditionally always following Moore's law, and I have a microcontroller, and I have a new technology node, and I make this um, uh, with more transistors, uh, so more powerful and less energy consuming. That is basically the, the, the boring trend that every nerd was following, right? And what can the new technology node give me? 
if you want to go to the 75 billion smart connected devices and if they are the mighty uh, steering of our planet and by the way if they are also the way to an eco-friendly world so if i want to please greater thunberg i need of course to exactly switch on my heating in my house five minutes before i come home and not let it run over the entire week yeah these type of things if i want to do this i need engineers who understand networking systems, distributed systems. We asked Rieger what that means in practice. The training that these engineers need is they need to understand how to build these systems on a much lower compute performance, much smaller energy footprint, well-networked with high-quality sensing. So my old slogan of sense, think, connect, act is very important for those. So you sense your environments, think of a smart advice, connect to the cloud. If your own brain is too small, of course, you have to ask someone who knows it. <laughs> and then you send your, your, your command to the arms and legs of your little robot. Whether this is a Nest thermostate or a self-driving car, always the same. Now, what the engineers so far have done is they have optimized these tiny little helpers or the big compute systems. But what is coming in new and what engineers are barely trained in is saying, how do you enable that last, the end user, can trust his devices. So trust your device is the big enabler or disabler for these entire markets. And trust your device means how can I make sure that my fridge can never be hacked? Because if this thing starts ordering 500 liters of milk for the weekend, I'm doomed. The other thing is how can I functionally uh, assure the safety. Because if my flattening iron for my shirts, uh, shirts burns down my house, you know what, then I will not tolerate this thing next to me. And I go with unironed shirts. You don't want your electronics to burn down your house. That's functional safety. And it's always been critical to have functional safety. But now there's a new consideration, which is everything is getting connected. Now you need to be concerned with security, right? With these type of connected systems, distributed systems, you need to have engineers who do privacy by design or security by design and functional safety by design, because otherwise you hardly can qualify and build your complex systems. And now, very far jump, take a car. The car is the most expensive and most complicated of these smart connected devices that I'm pitching. If you try to change one component in your car and you would have to requalify your complete autonomous battery electric driven connected vehicle, that's an undoable task, undoable in terms of manpower and in terms of money. So you need to have an architectural understanding there for saying, okay, how do I cut my little smart connected device into domains, into sub areas that I very, very strictly separate from each other? So how do I very strictly separate the, the powertrain of my car or of my cleaning robot from the gateway, from the connectivity domain, from the autonomy domain? And if I change the autonomy domain, I don't have to requalify the powertrain uh, and the other way around. These type of super disciplined thinkings, they are the important part. We asked Rieger how we might start seeing some of those concepts applied in the real world. We are starting in the industry with security of systems. Mm -hmm. You want to have your house to be unattackable? So what do you do? Okay, big lock at the front door, big lock at the back door. Okay, um, 
uh, so we uh, we call this basically your connectivity unit gets basically big firewalls right mm -hmm. then you have a big entrance hall of your house so you're putting two doberman there in other words your gateway your entrance hall needs two watchdogs then you have an in in vehicle network so your wiring harness or in other words you have a lot of aisles uh, in your uh, in your castle you have a big castle with hundreds of rooms these rooms are your ecus your control units You have a door lock at every ECU, so every microcontroller has a certain level of security, and you have surveillance systems on the aisles in your house. So you are uh, uh, supervising what is the data that is running on your on your wiring harnesses. Only the combination of all of that will make your house secure. You will immediately understand that example and that analogon. My, my mom gets what I'm doing with my house. The same we are doing on distributed systems, a car with 200 control units, a wiring harness, and connectivity to the outside world. Rieger said NXP has spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars to develop its own in-house curriculum about adapting security as a fundamental parameter in product design. He said over 3,000 engineers have taken the training. The company had to develop that training regimen itself because it didn't already exist, which begs the question, How aware of those issues are other companies in the electronics industry? This is what Rieger told us. What I'd wish that our customers knew before they came to us is the similarity between functional safety and security. Now, what I mean with that is the following. We have, of course, a lot of functional safety specialists, and we know that yeah. process uh, really well. And what I described is this is going from a system risk assessment down to the component level what you need to do. And you always ask yourself, what could go wrong in that system on that level? Functional security is very much the same. You bring in now connectivity and you say, okay, what could go wrong on the level of my fridge, on the level of the connectivity box of my fridge, on the, on the cooling system of my fridge, and, and so on. So in principle, you're following very much the same way of working, the same pattern, but only a very, very few people in the industry really get that. But in principle, it is from an approach of taking over ways yeah. of working uh, yeah. copying and that only slowly slowly uh, ripples through the through the ranks so those are the fundamental concepts behind safety and security we asked Riediger how those concepts are likely to be applied in future products what i see coming up is the mix of different capabilities in silicon so so far you had a microcontroller and you had a sensor and so on What I see coming up now is what we call crossover microcontrollers, where you have a very, very tiny, very energy-efficient microcontroller and a big, fat microprocessor sitting next to that on the same piece of silicon. And now what happens is the following. You have a, you have a front door surveillance camera, and this tiny little microcontroller is just heavy enough to run a lightweight AI to detect human movement. It can distinguish between... Oh, this is a cat, this is a tree moving in the wind, um, uh, this is a car passing by, there is human movement. And then it wakes up the, the big system, and the big system says, oh, that is Richard, Richard is my friend, I open the door. Or, hey, this is the postman, okay, uh, uh, I, I inform last that the, that the uh, parcel has been delivered. Or, hey, this is a guy I've never seen before, you know what, home alarm, take at least a couple of pictures and inform last that there is something strange going on. So these false alarms at the moment of surveillance systems, we can overcome. Similar use case in automotive. You have a rear view camera and your navigation system. These systems in one piece of silicon can 
within a couple of milliseconds, wake up the microcontroller and immediately bring the rear view picture onto your center stack. You are driving backwards. You are you're up and running immediately. Uh, you don't overrun the kit behind your car. But it takes you 20 seconds to boot up the big system for the rendering of the navigation map. Who cares? Yeah, Let this navigation thing come up slowly. But your, your vital functions of the system are there within a split second. This in one unit basically means that there is a trend that you combine functional safe stuff, so your ASIL-B or ASIL-C camera, and your navigation system, zero ASIL requirements, into one piece of silicon. And we have this in more and more silicon. We have hardware hyperization on and so on. This is computing at the edge with very, very different mission profiles on safety and security. And that is engineering trends that are very, very different from what we have done 10 years ago. What you just heard was an edited down version of a much longer interview. One line that didn't make the final cut, but which stuck with us, was Rieger's description of security in J.K. Rowling terms. What we need, he said, are fewer Dementors and more Patronuses. IC Insights is a market analysis company that keeps track of the quarterly sales of semiconductor companies, and it keeps a list of the top 10 in terms of revenue. Intel, Samsung, and TSMC are the world's three biggest foundries, and they're commonly on the list. In the most recent rankings, in fact, they're the top three in that order. Breaking into the top 10 was High Silicon, which is owned by Huawei. International editor Junko Yoshida has written extensively about high silicon. I asked her how significant it is that high silicon cracked the top 10. It's really a huge deal because um, the, uh, this really legitimized the rise of the Chinese semiconductor industry. In this case, it's only one, but this one is a big one. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's the start. I mean, there are... Did I hear there are over a thousand chip design companies in China now? <laughs> yes, I mean a thousand seven hundred. So there, there could be more coming <laughs> joining yes. High Silicon. Yes, right. Exactly, <laughs> but the High Silicon has its own status of its own, largely because the growth of High Silicon rode on the back of Huawei up to now. It's a uh, the, the the captive. Being captive to Huawei really helped High Silicon, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the how how much further High Silicon can go could depend on uh, how successful High Silicon will be in the open market. That you, if you remember uh, a couple of months ago, our colleagues in the Times, Times China reported that the High Silicon actually quietly started to um, design chips for other chip companies. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how it goes, right? Well, this follows a trajectory that's relatively common in the electronics industry. Um, You know, the semiconductor industry was founded in Silicon Valley, but then in the 80s, Japan uh, got into it, uh, subsequently South Korea. So this um, this is a common trajectory and companies in the past have found success being captive to a customer and, and then uh, and then sp- spreading out, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, the uh, certainly in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, companies like NEC, 
Toshiba, Hitachi, those are the big electronics companies in Japan in those in in those in that era. Right. And every company had its own chip division. And uh, this chip division really served their own parent company. The problem was that that wasn't, you know, Japan itself is not the biggest market in the world. Mm. And at the same time that uh, these parent companies, Japanese parent companies, had to really penetrate the global market. I don't think they really got there, except for the success of the Japanese semiconductor industry actually rests on the uh, DRAM manufacturing. That was a different trajectory, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the being captive is, uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, the music comes, music comes back on the guitar round. I mean, it's, a, it's <laughs> sort of like, uh, uh, what happened is I, I think, you know, I can tell you this mm-hmm. Apple today is one of the big chip companies. We don't, we don't, even though we don't think Apple being a chip company because right. Apple has the biggest, um, parent company that makes ton of smartphones, right? right? And the same thing could happen with Google or Facebook. So this comes around and goes around, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does this create any expectations for uh, where high silicon goes next or where some of it, the other Chinese chip designers go next? Um, it's hard to say, but now um, if you look at the history of the Chinese semiconductor industry, they had gone through a lot of misdirections, mm-hmm. and um, you know, in a way, um, the the, the uh, sort of failed attempts, largely because in early days in semiconductor market in China, uh, it was more of a central government, you know, sort of like five year plan, ten year plan, kind of under the planned economy. Uh, they put a lot of effort on the um, the sort of uh, national companies uh, invested by the government to build semiconductor foundries, mm-hmm. and none of them really succeeded except for SMIC, you know, the uh, the semiconductor manufacturing. Um, international Corporation is SMIC in Shanghai, and that's mm-hmm. really the leading uh, foundry. So foundry business really didn't go that well except for SMIC. Mm-hmm. However, in the middle of 2000, because of the broadly, uh, the, the because of the a number of IP cores broadly made available by companies like uh, ARM, SIVA, mm-hmm. Imagination, mm-hmm. Uh, they, the Chinese uh, design houses really took advantage of that movement, right? They right. can actually use those cores, put together SOCs, and roll on the back of the smartphone uh, application processor market. So that was, uh, I think, that uh, what happened in 2000. But among them all, um, I remember uh, more than 10 years ago, I wrote about 500 uh, Chinese sub- fabulous chip companies. Now, obviously, that has grown to 1,700. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, the, but, but the point is that the, now we have a model that high silicon, it's, 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 it's always like you have to have one company that break the wall. And I think high silicon is a really uh, great model that the, every other Chinese, comp- Chinese chip companies can look up to. And I think this is it's probably the beginning of the, um, it, if, if they play their cards right, um, I think uh, it's, it's the beginning of the big movement. Yeah, I think they will succeed. 
And we just reported this week that uh, SMIC is uh, probably going to do uh, an offering on one of the Shanghai exchanges. Uh, they're expecting to get as much as $3 billion in that offering. Yes, yeah, star, star market. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's interesting. But then there's a caveat, right? Uh, I think the story also suggested that uh, analysts are saying the biggest barrier for SMIC could be their access to advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And that's going to dog. That's going to dog SMIC because of the unfortunate trade friction between the U.S. and China. Right, right. Well, that's also kind of interesting because Intel just invested in a Chinese EDA company. Ah. Uh, what's going what's gonna to stop other companies, other finance companies, other venture companies uh, from looking at China as another opportunity and Chinese companies that do EDA, that do test and metrology, that do semiconductor production equipment, they may end up being a few years behind, but that's actually yeah. a, a really appetizing investment opportunity. That's, that's right? coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's uh, it's it ju- just because we are un- you know in the current situation, uh, both pandemic as well as the um, worsening trade relationship between the two, doesn't mean the market stopped functioning. Right. The Chinese continue to advance their technologies, and the U.S. are still in the position to leverage through investment or expand their ma- market. I think the, 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 this this whole uh, balance, uh, you know, we're, we're such an, uh, uh, you know, uncomfortable uh, place right now. Mm-hmm. But I think this this could this could flip. Yes. Yeah. Well, cool, Junko. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming along and uh, and sharing your wisdom again. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Junko and I just referred to three recent articles: one on high silicon cracking the top ten semiconductor companies. One on SMIC's plan to raise money through a stock offering, and one on recent investments made by Intel's venture capital arm. You'll find links to all three on the podcast page on our website at www.eetimes/podcasts. And speaking of wasabi, most weeks we close the show by marking the anniversaries of great moments in engineering history. So, Sherman, step right this way into the Wayback Machine, which we've set for May 13th, 1980. That was the day Ethernet officially began to take over the world. The basic idea for Ethernet was devised a few years earlier, in 1973, by Bob Metcalf and David Boggs, both then working at Xerox Park, the research operation that was the birthplace of so many of the basic concepts of modern computing. Everything from graphical user interfaces to the mouse to, well, Ethernet. The Ether was a concept popular in the 1800s. It was supposed to have been a a transitive medium through which electricity worked. It was a bad postulate that finally died in the early 1900s, but memory of it lingered long enough for Boggs and Metcalf to glom onto it and jokingly apply it to the local area networking standard they created in 1973. By the late 1970s, IBM had created a proprietary LAN technology called 
token ring, and IBM had the marketing muscle to establish it as a de facto standard. Digital Equipment Corp. had recognized the need for a LAN standard and was developing one of its own, but the results weren't fully satisfactory. Digital Equipment's legendary vice president of technology, Gordon Bell, knew about ring architectures and he thought they had drawbacks. He didn't really want to use IBM's token ring. So when Xerox showed up with Ethernet, which had all the advantages and none of the drawbacks of token ring, he was sold. Intel, meanwhile, had identified the need for computer communications chips of some kind, but it had none in the works. When Intel engineers found out about Ethernet, they were primed to make chips to support it. Andy Grove believed he could convince IBM to drop token ring and adapt Ethernet. Well, he was right, but he was also off by about 20 years. Bonus, though. Bonus for Ethernet. Xerox was offering it as an open standard. On May 13th in 1980, Xerox, Intel, and Digital announced a consortium backing Ethernet. Xerox adopted it for its word processors, and Digital Equipment made it an element of its DECnet networking system. Intel, meanwhile, created the first Ethernet chip, the 82586. With volume came economies of scale, which drove the price of Ethernet down rapidly. That was all the start that Ethernet needed. Ethernet eventually eclipsed all competitors. Here's Bob Metcalf from a speech he gave in 2016 about the LAN wars. And Ethernet won. So we beat a bunch of non-standard ones that had beaten us to market. And then we started fighting the standard ones. The IEEE 802 committee was formed to standardize local area networks. General Motors showed up with a token bus. I said, guys, you guys should build cars. Let us build the networks. <laughs> and then IBM, which then was 95% of the computer market, they said, no, 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 no. We're going to do token ring. So it took us, this one died quickly, and GM subsequently went bankrupt. Uh, IBM, it took us 20 years to kill this monster right here. Uh, and the reason we won is we were native mode. We understood, you know, those seven levels of the internet. We understood which level we were at. So we, did, we kept things simple because we knew the higher level protocols would take care. Ethernet has no acknowledgments, just has packets. It's the higher level protocols that say that's an acknowledgment. And uh, so we were able to be cheaper and faster. In fact, looking back, Ethernet was among the very first open standard success stories, providing an inspiration for subsequent open standard and open source technologies that have since become popular. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you get the podcast via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we refer to, along with the occasional photo and video. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspen's Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. <laughs>